The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. All over the world, tens of millions of thoughtful people, people that take the time and, and lead the reflective life, they're thinking about what's going on, ask the same kinds of questions. Be very different from us in their culture, different in language, but they're going to be asking those same ultimate questions of life. Questions of origins. Where did all of this come from? Where did the world come from? Questions of meaning. Is there a purpose to all of this? A reason why I'm alive? Is there a purpose in life? And extended to that, the question of history. Is there an unfolding purpose in history? Not just related to my own life, but has there been a story being told and now I'm part of it and is it unfolding? Is there purpose in all of this? And then there's the question soon after that of evil. As I just prayed, uh, just individual lone gunmen attacking, nation states invading, and, and just all of the disasters that happened as we prayed for our brother Scott Markley and hurricanes come in and destroy uh, church buildings and houses and, and even kill people. And it's just the issue of evil. Why is there so much suffering in the world? And then there's the question of direction. Where are we heading? Are, are we going anywhere? Is there a direction? Is there a direction in my life? Am I going anywhere? Am I, is there a purpose to my life and I'm heading towards something? And then bigger picture, is there a purpose for all of this? Are we going anywhere? And then the questions of eternity. What about death? What about life after death? What happens when we die? Now for us as Christians... We turn to the Bible to answer these questions. All over the world, however, people turn to religions or philosophical systems to answer them. Or nothing. And they just end up having feelings of depression and despair. But turn to religions. For us as Christians, we believe the Bible has the answer to all of these ultimate questions. Questions of origins. From the very beginning, we're told that God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And our own personal origins... That, that God intentionally knit us together in our mother's wombs. That we're here for a reason. It's not an accident. And questions of meaning. We were created to know the God that made the universe. And that, that purpose, that reason is enough. It's enough why we exist. That we can know him. The only true God in Jesus Christ. The one that he sent. That we can actually know him better and better. And it gives meaning to lives. And, and, and to evil. We understand why there is evil and death in the world. We are instructed that the world was created beautiful and good and sin entered the world and death came in through sin and that it's polluted the entire human race. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the questions of direction, we actually are going somewhere. There is a purpose. There is a history that's led up to us. Other purposeful beings, other human beings led purposeful lives before us and handed the baton of the world to us and now it's our time to lead purposeful lives. And there's going to be a story that's unfolding in our lives. And it's bigger than us. But it extends to the nations of the world. And every individual. There's a story being told. And we're heading somewhere. And eternity is real. There is life after death. There is judgment after death. We're going to die. And after that. Scripture says. That says it all right there. It's appointed to each one of us to die. And after that. Just pause right there. There is something after death. Judgment. And we believe as Christians, if you have faith in Christ, you'll live eternally. And you'll be filled with joy and you'll be free from all death, mourning, crying and pain. And that will be worth living. We also believe in a hell where those that have not had their sins forgiven are condemned. So those are the questions. That's the way we as Christians answer those questions flowing from the scripture. People from other religions have other prophets and other teachers that have told them other things. And there's been a vast system of lies that people have told themselves to answer those ultimate questions. And they flowed through the mouths of false prophets. Now false prophets and false teachers have plagued people from the beginning of, of, of redemptive history. 
We have records of false prophets like Janus and Jambres that opposed Moses during the time of the Exodus. And we have the story of Balaam, the false prophet, that enticed Israel to sin with the Moabites and led them, many of them, to death because of that. And we have, of course, the story of Elijah versus the prophets of Baal. And these prophets of Baal were leading Israel to worship false gods. And then there's Hananiah, the false prophet, who contradicted Jeremiah's clear prophecy of the exile of Babylon with false prophecies. And, and not just them, but there are more than I can even recount here. False prophets have plagued the people of God. So also, in the church era, in, in the church age, the church has been plagued by false teachers as well. All of the famous religions and cults of our world have been started by false prophets, false teachers. And I believe if you know what to look for, you can see a supernatural, a demonic element to many of them. For example, Muhammad had visions of an angel in a cave in Hira in 6.10. And that began the Quran. That's where that flowed from, a supernatural encounter. Joseph Smith was a con man, a dowser, who used seer stones to try to find hidden treasure. And then used seer stones to give us the Book of Mormon and the false religion known as Mormonism. Charles Taze Russell, 19th century false teacher, got out of Satan's deep freezer and microwaved Arianism and reserved it by the watchtower of the Jehovah's Witnesses, teaching that Jesus is a created being. Worked back then, why couldn't it work again? False teacher. Mary Baker Eddy from my hometown, not proud of it, uh, I'm not saying I'm not proud of my hometown. I'm saying I'm not proud of the fact that Mary Baker Eddy came from Boston. She started Christian science denying that, that physical existence is real, that pain is real, that even death is real. So much so that she had a phone installed in her mausoleum so she could call and get someone come get her out of there if they falsely buried her because death isn't real. I remember my systematic theology professor, Roger Nicole, said he got hold of the number and called it. And even weirder, it was busy when he called it. That really <laughs> bothered him. I don't know what to make of that. But this has continued, and we see these cults rising up, and they're deceiving so many. We have expressions that have entered into our culture, and some people don't even know where they come from, like drinking the Kool-Aid. But those of us who have been alive long enough to know that came from James uh, Jones in Jonestown in Guyana. 909 people drank the Kool-Aid and died, poison Kool-Aid. Cults, false teachers. And the history of false teaching and false prophecy is horrific. And it's the greatest single attack that Satan has ever made on the gospel is false teaching. It's greater than uh, allurement to the flesh or persecution. Those are the three great attacks that Satan has made on the church. False teaching, persecution, and pleasure or sin. But false teaching is the worst because it destroys the actual truth, the message that the church would purport, would preach. And that's why Peter says in 2 Peter 2, blackest darkness is reserved for them. As we come to the second half of Revelation 13, we come to the final false prophet. Who, pro, who will proclaim the final false religion. The most successful, actually, of all the false religions. Now, I'm very mindful of the fact that people aren't here week after week, every week. There's some visitors that come here, and, and uh, as you hear the scripture read, you're parachuted right into the middle of a chapter, in the middle of the most difficult book to interpret, and you could easily say, what in the world? What is this? Then another beast came up, and, and you're like, did I miss something? You did. You missed a lot. We're in a sequential exposition of the book of Revelation, and we're right in the middle of Revelation 13. So let me give you a little bit of, of review. Book of Revelation, the final book of the Bible, called Revelation right from the, uh, from the Greek word apocalypsis, which means an unveiling, a pulling back of that which we could not see if God didn't show it to us. First and foremost, the apocalypse, the book of Revelation, reveals Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of Christ, the greatness of Christ. So it's always helpful for us, as you read every section, to say, how does this show me the greatness of Jesus? And I did that at the end last week about the Antichrist, and I'll return to that in just a moment. 
But it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. But it's also a revelation of the future. God gave John, gave the seer, the, the, the author, these words to show his people, God's people, what must soon take place. Now the word soon is just in the next, in the order of uh, redemptive history. Not soon the way we would measure it, but with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. But he, he gave us this book to show us the future. And so as we read this book, we should read a large section of it saying these are things that have not yet happened in John's era and they're in the future. It's debatable whether they're future for us now. It's 2,000 years later, but I believe most of the things that I'm preaching on have still yet to happen. And I think there's recapitulation of the things that happen in every era of redemptive history. So 1 John 2.18 is a key text for me in eschatology. You have heard that one, an antichrist is coming, and even now, many antichrists have come. It's a very important verse. And so we're going to get again and again the attack of antichrists, plural, that are not the final antichrist, but there is one coming. Now the book of Revelation can generally be read sequentially, not in every detail. But we have revealed a heavenly court, a throne, God seated on it, Jesus The lamb that was slain for the sins of the world comes and takes from the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll sealed with seven seals. He begins in Revelation uh, chapter 6 to break open the seven seals. And as he breaks open the seals, things happen on earth. There are different interpretations of the seven seals, but I think they are preparatory. What Jesus would say in Matthew 24, just the beginning of birth pains. The beginning of birth pains implies that there's going to be even greater agonies until the birth comes. And so there's going to be more pain that's yet to come. And so wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes in various places, beginning of birth pains. I think that's what you see in the seven uh, seals. But then comes something called the seven trumpets. Now that's a whole different thing. And when you read about it in Revelation 8 and 9, you see uh, assaults on planet earth that there's just no way we can rightly say these have ever happened. And there's, they're not metaphorical for anything either. They're so specific. Green grass and vegetation and trees, a third of them burning up. And a third of the sea turning to blood. And a third of the living creatures in the sea dying. And a third of the drinking water being polluted and unable to be be drunk. And a third of the the celestial beings reduced in in luminosity, I believe, one way to interpret that. And we have all of these things. And then a a demonic plague that comes on people on the earth. So that they're they're assaulted by demons that billow up from the, from the, the, the... the nether reaches of the earth, they come up like smoke out of a furnace and then they, they plague people for five months so that people long to die, but they don't die. And then some demonic army, 200 million strong, runs roughshod over planet earth and kills a third of the population of the earth. Two or three billion people. Revelation 8 and 9, those are the seven plagues. I haven't seen anything like that that's happened. Not to that scale. And so that leads uh, eventually to a depiction in Revelation 12 and 13 of behind the scenes, Satan and his activities, the devil and and his angels in Revelation 12, and warfare in heaven, and then Satan thrown to the earth and his assault on the people of God on earth. He's a dragon. He's portrayed as a dragon. And he hates the children of God, those that believe in Jesus and follow the testimony of Jesus and obey God's commandments. Believers, Jews and Gentiles alike. Revelation 12. So that leads us then to Revelation 13, which is Satan's masterwork, his masterpiece, called the beast from the sea. So when you heard the text read just a moment ago in, in verse 11, then I saw another beast. The first beast is what we talked about last week. Now the word antichrist does not appear in the chapter or anywhere in this book. It only appears in First and Second John. Paul calls him the man of sin or the man of lawlessness, but I think we're talking about the same individuals. A world ruler who will come and dominate the earth. And power over the entire earth will be given to him. We've never seen that. Largest empire in history had a quarter of the earth's surface. So one man ruling over the entire earth. We saw that the beast from the sea called up by the power of the dragon, Satan, and given power over the earth. And he was given that power for a short time, 42 months, time, times, and half a time, or 1,260 days, three and a half years. I believe all that's in the future. We talked about that last time. Now we're going to see a second beast. And he is called, in Revelation 16, 19, and 20, the false prophet, though he's not called that here in this 
chapter, just the beast from the earth. We're going to learn about him. The person of the false prophet. Remember I said last week that uh, Revelation 13 gives a grotesque parody of the Trinity. Father, Son, Spirit. So we have the dragon, the antichrist, and the false prophet. And together they parody or mimic the actions of God. All right, so let's look at this, the person of the false prophet in verse 11. The beast from the earth. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. He's called a beast and is directly compared and and connected with the beast from the sea. Is another of the same kind. His origin, however, is from the earth, not the sea. He is a beast still and he exercises a destructive effect on all who come under his sway. He's a beast. He comes to to destroy, to steal and kill and destroy. This false prophet, he speaks. It's his speaking more than anything else that's destructive. He spoke like a dragon. He had two horns like a lamb and, and spoke like a dragon, but spoke like a dragon. Verse 12, he exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. I believe this is an individual, a person, not a system or a philosophy. Many interpreters try to make this whole thing a system. Uh, One of the most common is the Roman Catholic system. And there's reason for that because there's seven hills that we'll see in, in Revelation 17. I understand all that. And certainly the reformers that came after that were battling against powers from Rome and Roman Catholicism. They tend to see that as the the beast. But this is, I believe, still future to us. And this beast is a person, not a philosophy. Because you can't throw a system or a philosophy into the lake of fire. But this, this individual, like the beast from the sea, the Antichrist, and like the dragon, is capable of being condemned... ...into the lake of fire. And so he will be thrown in the lake of fire. And it says that he has two horns like a lamb in verse 11. Whereas the beast from the sea had ten horns, this beast only has two horns. And his appearance like a lamb points to an outward winsomeness and apparent gentleness. He's not terrifying or scary like the first beast would be. But he really is truly a soul-killing monster. Jesus said in Matthew 7.15, watch out for false prophets... They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. False teachers always tend to appear beautiful and attractive on the outside. They're appealing in that way. And no wonder because Satan masquerades as an angel of light. And we shouldn't be surprised that his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. So he's appealing, he's attractive, religious, gentle, I guess in some way. But like the scribes and Pharisees that Jesus condemns in Matthew 23, they are whitewashed tombs. On the outward, outside they look as righteous, but inside full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. It says he spoke like a dragon. His language is that of a dragon, the dragon, Satan. He speaks the devil's words. And so therefore he is an exceptionally winsome speaker and a skillful liar. The beast from the earth. What is the purpose of the false prophet? Verse 12. Well, he made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. Now, the ultimate goal of Satan is to be worshipped. That's what he wanted in Isaiah 14. He wanted to supplant God. He wanted to take God's place. He wanted to be worshipped and he was cast down. Isaiah 14. So also the ultimate purpose of the Antichrist is to be worshipped as God. Many world-conquering tyrants had this same megalomaniac trait or tendency, yearning to be worshipped and adored by the people they dominate. Yearning to be seen as a god. Alexander the Great certainly did. Oh, they believed in incarnations anyway. They believed that the gods took human form, and he believed he was the descendants of gods. The descendant of gods. Roman emperors did the same thing, same pluralistic or polytheistic world view and their emperors frequently sought to be worshipped which is a major issue in that era in which the apostle John was writing and would be for another century or more that the Roman emperors would demand to be worshipped as a god and that's the one thing Christians could not do. 
Well, if that's true again and again, we see it even with a small ruler in the book of Acts. Herod, remember, who's wearing these splendiferous robes and gets up and talks to people who want something from him. They want food. And so they're willing to worship him. And they said, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. Remember that? And immediately, because he did not give glory to God, he was struck down by an angel of the Lord and was eaten by worms and died. He's small fish. And he still had megalomaniac worship me tendencies. Well, how much more than the final ruler, the Antichrist, the beast from the sea, will be? And the beast from the earth, the false prophet, it's his job to be sure people worship the Antichrist. That's what he's here to do. Now, the Antichrist that we studied last week, it's said of him in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4, almost, almost word-for-word paraphrase from Daniel 11, Paul quoting... Daniel 11, but ascribing it to the man of sin that's coming, the Antichrist that's coming. 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. 2 Thessalonians 2, 4. Well, therefore, the ultimate goal of the false prophet is false worship of the Antichrist. He will be the worldwide champion of the beast from the sea. His advocate, his mouthpiece, like the Holy Spirit, is for Jesus. What of the power of the false prophet? We'll look at verses 12 through 14. First and foremost, we're going to see the, the political authority, the governmental coercive power of the Antichrist at this man's disposal, at the false prophet's disposal. So the first power of the false prophet is government or military compulsion. If you look at verse 12, it says, He exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. So he's going to transfer political, military power into religious worship, into a religious system. That's his job. Remember the worldwide extent that we already saw of the Antichrist's military or governmental Power, first ruler in history, verse 7, he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. Worldwide power, that's what the Antichrist has. And remember that the world will worship the Antichrist, we already saw that in verse 8. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the book of life, belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. Well, it says that that's going to happen We're we're like going back to say, how did it happen? The false prophet is the one who's instrumental in making that happen. He will use the full power of the state in matters of religion. There will be no separation of church and state in that final system. None at all. The governmental power of the Antichrist will be put at this false prophet's disposal... To make certain that the inhabitants of the earth will worship the ruler. It will be literally illegal not to worship the Antichrist. And he will be able to unleash the military to compel people to worship. Big picture. But beyond that, more locally, local government. He'll be able to unleash local governmental power. The police state. Local governing officials to make sure that everyone in that community worships the Antichrist. No one will be able to resist. The intelligence apparatus also available to find out who's resisting, who's reluctant, who will not submit. So that's the first power of the false prophet. The second is miraculous, supernatural, spiritual. So the focus will be, first and foremost, the Antichrist's miraculous recovery from the wound that he received. Verse 3, if you look back to verse 3, it says, One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound. But that wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. So the astonishment of the world is the root system, the heart system of the worship. The people are amazed at him. They're not reluctant. They're astonished and amazed. And so in verse 12 it says, He exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. You see, that's the connection. It's a supernatural, it's a miracle. It's incredible. And then verse 14, the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. So the false 
false prophet will point to this and say, did you not see what happened here? How do you explain it? He must be God. So that's the, kind of the central false satanic miracle that he's going to use. But beyond this, he will be able to do other signs and wonders, other, do, work other miracles. Look at verse 13. He performed great and miraculous signs. This is the false prophet now. Great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men. Now this must immediately call to our minds the contest between Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. You remember that story. When the nation of Israel was just going after a false religion, the worship of the Baals. And so God raises up Elijah courageously to confront these false prophets. And they set up, at his word, a contest between Baal and Yahweh, the true God. And they each set up an altar, they each set up a sacrifice. You remember the whole thing, the rules of the game were clear. The prophets of Baal should cry out to Baal that he would send down fire and burn up the sacrifice. And Elijah would call out to God, the true God, and that he would send on fire. And the God who answered by fire, he is God. Sounds good. Fair enough. And so the prophets of Baal went on and they cried and screamed and went on. This went on for hours, cutting themselves until the blood was flowing. But no one answered. There was nothing there. No fire came down from heaven. Now let me just pause and say, why not? Because Satan can't do fire from heaven. No, he can, he can do far more than that. Because the demons aren't capable of doing it. No, because Satan didn't want to do it. No, he would love to have done it. Why? Because God was showing grace to the nation of Israel. And restraining Satan and his demonic powers. So that they would not be able to show that miraculous sign at that key moment. And so win the affections of the Jewish people. But God showed what he could do. And Elijah prayed a simple prayer and fire fell down from heaven and burned up. Not just the sacrifice, but the stones, everything burned up. And the the people all fell down on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. Yeah, but at the end, at the end of time, God's going to step back and say, do it. Do it. God has been restraining these false prophets. And the demons that they are representing, though they don't know it, but they are representing demons. He's been restraining them from showing supernatural power that they definitely possess. But at the end, he's not going to do that. He's going to allow this false prophet to work signs and wonders. And this is the very thing the Apostle Paul predicts in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9-12. through 12. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan... Displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders. And in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them, listen to this, a powerful delusion. So that they will believe the lie. And so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. He's going to let the demons, he's going to let Satan do the the lying signs and wonders so that people will believe and follow that false system. Do you not see the grace of God throughout centuries in which he restrained the demons from doing this precise thing? How good God has been. But in the end, he's going to pull back and give them over to what they want. And they will worship Satan in the end. So we see the worldwide effectiveness of the false prophet. Verse 14, because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. And as we already saw in verse 8, all the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. Just ponder that for a moment. As As I thought about it, some explosive ideas came to my mind. This will be statistically the most successful religion in history. More people will follow this religion than any other religion there's ever been in history. More people will worship the Antichrist during that short amount of time than ever worship Jesus Christ or Buddha or Allah or any other deity. A higher percentage of the human race will worship the beast. And do you see why the combination of coercive governmental power, terror, and actually a winsome attraction because of the miracles and all the things that the beast, uh, the Antichrist has been doing will combine and be very successful. 
if you keep going logically, then every other religion will be illegal. He will set himself above every god. So every other religion, religion will be illegal and will be instantly obsolete. Islam will become obsolete. Hundreds of millions of Muslims will cease being Muslims. Hinduism will become obsolete in the same way. The national, nationalistic religion of India will cease being compelling for Indians. Imagine, finally, Hindus and Muslims agreeing on religion. But all they've done is exchange one satanic life for a, another one, a more compelling one. Millions of Buddhists will give up their meditations and their seeking of enlightenment and find it in the beast. Even atheists and agnostics will give in their empty, materialistic, atheistic system and follow this supernatural being. But there is one group that will refuse to bow down. And I believe only one group. And that is those whose names were written in the book of the Lamb of God who was slain from the foundation of the world. Christians, Jewish and Gentile believers in Christ will be empowered through the Holy Spirit to say no at the cost of their lives. They'll be given power to refuse, to stand up. Look again at verse 8. All the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the book of life, belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. So the elect will be able to resist. Why? Because 1 John 2, 18 and 20 tells us why. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now, many Antichrists have come. Verse 20, 1 John 2, 20. But you have an anointing from the Holy One and you know the truth. Praise God for that. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. And that sealing results in knowing spiritual truth. It gives you a discernment. He says, I'm not writing to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it. It doesn't mean you can't learn things. It doesn't mean you can't learn things from a sermon. It means that when you hear the truth, you know it. The Spirit says, no, that's truth. You get an anointing. But when you hear falsehood, you say, that's false. I will not follow that. Jesus said in John 10, they will not follow the voice of another. Because they're my sheep. And so Jesus said in Matthew 24, 24 through 26, false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect if that were possible. Friends, it's not possible. And then he said, behold, I have told you ahead of time. So I'm telling you now ahead of time. That's the purpose of this section of scripture. That you be warned and that you know what's coming. So if anyone tells you there, there he is out in the desert, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. You will be able to re resist and to withstand the lie. This is the reason why the dragon and the Antichrist are so enraged, not satisfied with 95%, I don't know, of the world's population. They're going to go after the 5% that won't bow down. And I don't know the number 5. I don't know what percent will be genuine Christians at that point, but some. And he's going to go after them, enraged. Nebuchadnezzar, was he satisfied with the fact that all of the officials in Babylon were bowing down to his idol in Daniel 3 and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego alone were standing? Was he fine with that? Not at all. This is the mind of the megalomaniac tyrant. He's going to go after Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and compel them to bow down. And if they don't, he's going to throw them in the fiery furnace. And he's so enraged, he's going to do a stupid thing, which is heat it up. So they're instantly incinerated. He should have slowed it down. Other people learned that later. Use green wood. The, the fire burns a lot lower and they suffer longer. But he's just out of his mind. And the command was so urgent that those that threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire, they were consumed. That's the mind of the tyrant says, you will do what I say. You will worship me. Or what about Haman? Was he satisfied at all the honors and accolades given him in the empire of Persia? No. One man bothered him. Would not show fear in his presence. His name was Mordecai. And he said, none of this means anything to me. Except this one Jew will not bow down. You see the mind of the tyrant here. And that's the mind that Antichrist is going to have. And that the false prophet will have. So jealous. And so they're going to enact a final solution. To weed them out and kill them. Or compel them to worship. 
The final solution has to do two steps. First, a supernatural idol, the image of the beast that everyone must worship or be slaughtered. And then secondly, the mark of the beast required for anyone who wants to buy or sell. That's the program of the false prophet in verses 14 through 17. First, the image of the beast is set up, verse 14, because of the signs he was given a power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Throughout the history of the world, people following false religious systems have set up physical representations, idols, as a focus of their worship. It's the very thing forbidden to the Jews in the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 20, verse 4, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven or above or in the earth beneath or the waters below. So this wicked final uh, world religion will have an idol. And it will be the most compelling idol that's ever been made in human history. An idol is something crafted by skill. It's made by human ingenuity. It's made by human imagination. It's artistic. That's the whole problem with it. You think of God the way you think of him and then you make what you think. Exact reversal of what God did when he made us in his image. And so he makes this idol in verse 15. He was given power, the, anti, the uh, false prophet was given power, implied by God. God allows him to do this. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak. So this, this is again a parody of what God does. God breathes life into Adam and he becomes a living creature, Right? So this is a grotesque parody of God again. We just keep getting the same thing again. And, and this thing comes to life. And it begins to speak. And it becomes the focus of this worldwide new perverted demonic religion. Verse 15. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast. So that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. This is the compulsion of the state. The, th- the threat of execution for all who will not worship. But beyond that, the controlling of all buying and selling on the earth. The mark of the beast. So now we come at last. And you're like, why didn't you do the whole sermon on 666? Well, it's just a detail. And I can't talk to you for 45 minutes about the mark of the beast without speculating. Now some of you would like me to speculate. You would like me to talk about implanted chips. You would, you would like me to talk about devices that will give off your GPS position to the government. And they're going to scan your forehead and your hand. You, I know what you want, you want me to do. I'm going to do some of that, but not a lot. But that's, this is one of the most famous details in the whole book of Revelation. It's amazing the number of hard rock bands that know about 666. They don't know any exegesis or interpretation or anything setting in context, but they know the number is 666. Look what it says, verse 16 through 18. He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number. His number is 666 or 666 might be a more accurate translation. Source of endless speculation. Well, let's just stick to the text and just keep it in its context first. The first job. Just read it in context. And it's in the context of the final era of history when the Antichrist is ruling the earth. And when this individual, the false prophet, comes along and sets up a world religion. Compelling people to worship the beast and his image. And seeking, it seems, to weed out those who won't. So that everyone's united around this one world religion because he can't brook any dissent. That's what's going on. And so everyone has to receive this mark of the beast. And it extends to everyone on earth. No matter how, what their socioeconomic level. Everyone's small or great, rich or poor, free or slave. It affects their bodies. It's a mark, it says, on the right hand or on the forehead. Without the mark, you cannot buy or sell. Especially food, you would think. The mark of the beast is the mark of his name. So basically you're branded like cattle. You're owned by the Antichrist. He owns you. You are his slave. It is again a grotesque parody of the sealing that we have of the Holy Spirit. Where it says earlier in Revelation 7, 3. Do not harm those that are sealed on the foreheads. Those that are servants of God sealed on the foreheads. So that's a parody of that. 
So this is a continual involvement of the individual in loyalty and worship to the Antichrist every single time he or she buys or sells something. It's a continual way of saying, I worship you. Now, it calls, it says, for wisdom. The mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name, this calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast. For it is man's number, his number is 666. So the mark is some kind of branding. Um, I, I did a lot of, for me, interesting or fun research on this this week. You can do the same. All you have to do is type in mark of the beast 666 and off you go. And you can do as much reading as you want on it. There is a conspiracy. There is one world system. And there's a group of intelligent beings that are seeking to control you and the whole world. Funny thing is, I actually believe all that's true. And Satan is running it. And he is a puppet master. I think it's true. But it's not what those websites think is going on. There was a, a mining company out west that required a kind of a subcutaneous thing planted in. And, and uh, it's like, well, I'm not getting that. One guy sued and got half a million in damages because his religious convictions would not allow him to receive the mark of the beast. Um, so those are the kind of things that are going on. Can I just tell you, the way I'm going to approach this is the way I've approached other key issues of the book of Revelation. We have to combine current events with exegesis. You have to put them together. Jesus wants you to do that. The, the scripture alone is not enough. Things have to be happening in space and time on planet earth for the fulfillment to come together. And Jesus gave us permission to do that. It's not disparaging the scripture to say you need more information. You need more information than is given in the scripture. So when he says, for example, when you see... Standing in the holy place, the abomination of desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, then, then when you see that with your eyes, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So it's Daniel plus what you see. Does the same thing with the, uh, the lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its figs get twi- uh, tender and its leaves come, leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, I'm going to extend it back to the seven trumpets. When you see all of these things and the one world ruler and all that, then you will know that that he, Jesus, is near right at the door. So combine them. So then go back. This calls for wisdom. It also calls for information. If anyone has insight, you can calculate the number of the beast. Okay, well, if you do, all right, you will join a long line of people who have sought to do it. Some people use different letters and they would assign letters uh, to, you know, the first letter is number one, second letter like Latin or Greek. And they would add up and it added up to Nero, Caesar, or it's called gematria, that thing of assigning numbers to letters. And you can get a number. Some people did it when Reagan was president because his three names, all of them had six letters in it. Ronald, Wilson, Reagan. There it is. I mean... Well, I can assure you he is not the Antichrist because he's dead and we continue. So, but people do this kind of thing. Isaac Newton did it. Seriously, you can go online and see his treatises on the book of Revelation. Very interesting. But he was not able to calculate it because he's lacking information. We, if we are not living in that final generation, we will miss out on information. But John, Jesus, wants a generation to have it. It will just be one more final, clear proof. This man is the Antichrist. That's what we do with that. Furthermore, it will be voluntary. Fear not. There will be no ninjas in the middle of the night putting this thing in your forehead or your, or your hand. And you woke up and what could you do? Now you have to go to hell. It will say in the next chapter in Revelation 14, anyone who receives the mark of the beast will con- be condemned forever. And I'm going to preach a whole sermon on eternal conscious torment. But it's linked to the receiving of the mark of the beast. It's a volitional. It's an act of your will. It's an act of desire. I want to worship you. And the elect will never give in, give in to it. All right, so what applications can we take from this? Well, first, just thank God for his grace in forewarning us. Thank God that you have been told ahead of time what to look for. And that you will be ready. 
And thank God that he's been restraining Satan and the demons from the false religions and from supernatural displays. Thank God you were protected from following false religions. Thank God for his restraining grace. Realize that the ones who are going to get sucked in are those that refuse to believe the truth. And so wanted to believe a lie. So if I can just say secondly, don't be an unbeliever then. Today is the day of grace. Today is the day of salvation. Yes, you parachuted into the middle of one of the hardest chapters to interpret. And you have like no idea what, what this whole story is about and all that. Okay, let me just make it clear. The simple fact. The ultimate questions are answered in Jesus. Why was the universe made? For his glory. By his intentional power, the universe was made by his word. Why were you knit together in your mother's womb? That you might have a relationship with Almighty God and love him and serve him. What about the problem of sin? Sin entered the world through Adam, but then we took on his nature. And as soon as we understood law, we violated God's laws. We have violated God's laws. And we deserve to die. Not just a physical death, but eternal death and hell that we're going to talk about in the next chapter. We deserve it. But God sent his son to deliver us from condemnation. In a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're going to celebrate that deliverance. We're going to, we're going to feast. A foretaste feast of joy. Because Jesus delivered us from condemnation. And all you need is to trust in him. Not by works, but by faith. This is the day of salvation. Don't be an unbeliever. But trust and believe. Thirdly, teach your children. Teach them. Spend time telling them what's coming. No, this is not the most important facet of theology. But it's been given us many, many times in many ways that we need to know about this. Teach it to your children. Fourth, in the meantime, be discerning. Do you know that local churches are responsible for the kind of teaching they get? You are responsible to get rid of false teachers if they are false. Paul was put out with the Galatians that they put up with the Judaizers. He was put out with the Corinthians that they put up with people who pushed themselves forward and slapped them in the face. 2 Corinthians 11. They shouldn't put up with those people. They should get rid of them. And so the people are responsible, ultimately, for what kind of teaching they put up with. So what you need to do is you need to be Bereans. Take the things I've preached here today. Go back to Revelation 13, 11 through 18. Read it over. See if I've been faithful to the text. I'm not saying I know the proper interpretation or anything, but there's a difference between saying, I don't know this is, this is an idea, and false teaching. Go beyond that to look at the character and the life of your teachers. Jesus said, by their fruits, you'll recognize them. You can't pick grapes from thorn bushes. So look at what they are like. What, how are they living their lives? Now, Tim Challies in the Gospel Coalition website identified patterns of false teachers. And I would commend his analysis to you. I just want to go over... Some marks of false teachers so that you can be aware of the types of people there are. He identified first the heretic who teaches what blatantly contradicts an essential teaching of the Christian faith. Cults like Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses that blatantly deny things clearly taught. Or oneness Pentecostals who deny the Trinity. Tim Challies in that article goes so far as to call Pope Francis, the Roman Catholic leader, a false teacher as well. Not only does he, as every pope has done since the Reformation, deny justification by faith alone, through, uh, by faith alone, but he goes beyond that to a mushy form of universalism. The pope said this, you ask me if the God of the Christians forgives those who don't believe and who don't seek the faith? I start by saying, and this is the fundamental thing, God's mercy has no limits if you go to him with a sincere and contrite heart. The issue for those who don't believe in God is just to obey their conscience. Sin, even for those who have no faith, exists where people disobey their conscience. So you don't need Jesus. You don't need repentance or faith or anything. You just need to follow your conscience. That's false teaching, friends. Secondly, the charlatan. The charlatan is only interested in the Christian faith to the extent that it can fill his wallet. He's trying to get rich. He cites examples of favorite, uh, famous TV preachers like Benny Hinn and Creflo Dollar. They con people into sending them millions of dollars. Thirdly, there's the prophet who tells you new revelations and new insights from his or her mind. And you're going to follow him or her more than you're going to follow anything else. More you're going to follow scripture. New revelations, new insights. The prophet. 
he warned Christians about Sarah Young in her book, Jesus Calling. I found that interesting. Sarah Young, uh, she wrote her daily devotional written in the words as if they were spoken directly by Jesus Christ himself immediately to you. That's dangerous. It creates almost a new canon of scripture, new direct revelation of words that Jesus is speaking through the prophetess, Sarah Young. It's very dangerous. Fourthly, there is the abuser. The abuser is the person who uses a position of leadership, spiritual leadership, to take advantage of other people. As I said in 2 Corinthians 11, you put up with people who push themselves forward and slap you in the face and take advantage of you. People can do that, false leaders can do that sexually. They can take advantage of women, take advantage of children, take advantage of people even financially, as we said earlier. Then there's the divider, fifthly, who, who actually just leaves a wake of factions and divisions. Seems to stir up strife and controversy everywhere he goes. And then there's the tickler who comes and tickles people's ears with things they want to hear. Keeps it positive. You have any idea who I might mean? <laughs> Just trying to keep positive. Don't want to offend anybody. Joel Osteen was asked by, uh, uh, I think, 60 Minutes, whatever, why is there no scripture in your recent book at all? It's like, I'm just trying to keep things positive. He was asked about the exclusivity of Christ. Would not assert that Christ alone is Savior. It's a tickler of the ears. And then finally, there's the speculator. This is the one who's obsessed with novelty and originality and speculation. Speculating about even the end times or exact dates and all that of the Lord's return. These are types and patterns of false teachers. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to pray, thanking God for the time we've had in his word and prepare for the Lord's Supper. And we're going to invite you to come and partake if you have trusted in Christ, if you're a believer in Christ and you've testified to that by water baptism, we're going to invite you to come. If you are not a believer, we're going to ask that you refrain, just observe. We would love to tell you more about how to come to Christ and you can partake next time. Please close with me in prayer. Father, I thank you for this time we've had in your word. And Lord, I ask that you would please enable all of us to be warned and aware of what Satan is trying to do. And now as we turn to the Lord's Supper, we pray that you'd strengthen each of us to partake in a way that's honorable, in a way that feeds and strengthens us in our walk with you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So deacons, if you would please. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.